In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 24 years ago this week, I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin. Yeah. Yeah, oh, no, no, really. Because uh, I remember rather distinctly feeling a bit of envy for some of my fellow graduates who had a very clear path ahead of them of what was going on next. I, with my freshly minted bachelor's in liberal arts, <clears throat> knew, knew at that moment that it would not be long before I'd be the guy in the coffee shop staring at his rent invoice going, how am I going to pay for this? It was a rather hollow feeling, not really having a sense of what's next. And to boot, on the day of my graduation, um, here I am in the Frank Irwin Center with about 1,500 other graduates. And in a rush of rather impulsiveness that is not typically characteristic of me, I am, I, I am not the, uh, the reckless, long-haired man you see before you today as I am now. But at that moment, I felt the sudden urge to walk up to Dean Eklund Olson to receive my diploma and at that moment give him a high five as he handed me the diploma. And on that moment, I obscured my face from the photographer down there at the bottom of the dais. And therefore, of all 1,500 students, I was the only one without a photograph on that day because my arm was in front of my face. And so when I came to that realization, I realized I had that sound in my head of, of Linus saying to Charlie Brown, of all the Charlie Browns I know, you're the Charlie Browniest. We are in commencement season, right? We, we, we congratulated and celebrated our high school graduates last week, and uh, they uh, were all going to go to some sort of ceremony, and so that's what people do. And on, on commencement season, there's a great deal of rejoicing because it's the end of studies, it's the beginning of a new chapter, and yet, if only to kind of demand from them their last bit of obeisance and submission, um, people have to endure these things called commencement addresses where they're told all about how to live. And I think I don't remember a single word that that man spoke at my graduation. I know I may not be typical, but I didn't remember a thing. Last week, Alan Jacobs, he, he did this really interesting essay where he compared the commencement addresses for three different people, some of whom you may know. Um, C.S. Lewis, you've heard of him. Steve Jobs, the late founder of Apple Computer. And David Foster Wallace who was a brief but had a brief but illustrious career as both a nonfiction and a fiction author before he took his life about 10 years ago. And he just compared what it was that they each said in their commencement addresses. And it was rather a remarkable breadth of, of, um, of wisdom. C.S. Lewis's uh, talk to those graduates of King's College was, beware this thing called the inner ring. The impulse that everybody feels to kind of find, to become part of that in-group with respect to their career, that you're always worried about finding these people that you're supposed to become part of, and, and that whole impulse can sort of drive you almost frantically into it, and then even once you're in it, you're kind of fearful about whether you'll stay in it or whether you're still in it. He says, be careful of this impulse toward the inner ring. Steve Jobs, he comes along and he kind of tells three stories to make this point. Um, listen to your heart, follow your bliss, don't lead somebody else's life. And then his last two words are, stay foolish, stay hungry. And then David Foster Wallace at Kenyon College about 15 years ago, you know what he said? I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm going to leave it until later in the sermon just to make sure you don't leave. All three of them, though, despite having a very vast array of wisdom to share, they all had something in common. They were all out to point those who were listening to them to what is that good life that they ought to pursue. 
And that's kind of the mandate of commencement addresses. They're not just up there to tell jokes. Some do. But in, in, in essence, every commencement address is out to prepare those who have just finished their studies. What is the way, what is the horizon you should set your eyes on? And every one of those three, what they did was say this. There is a beginning or a foundation to that good life you want. And, and to, every, to each of them, they all said, you know, the beginning of that is this education that you just received and this institution that has just birthed you into the wider world. That's the beginning. And then they had something to say about what it's like to experience that life, that good life, to give you sort of um, uh, messages from the road so that you are understanding what it's like to be out in that wide world. But lest they become so overwhelmed by all of the guidance that they're going to be getting in those addresses and from other people, each one of those speakers also did a third thing. They're out to distill the good life into very simplest terms, into its essence. That's what commencement addresses do. That's what those commencement speakers did. The Lord Jesus is in his last three passages of the Sermon on the Mount. And you might say it is his commencement address. And he begins that commencement address by doing just what C.S. Lewis, Steve Jobs, and David Foster Wallace did for his audience. Jesus, throughout the entirety of the sermon, has been out to point us to that good life. The good life that finally believes that God is for you. But in order to make his case, to express the seriousness of all he said, he does three things for us about in his commencement address. To show us what is the beginning of that life, that is its foundation, its necessary beginning. To give us an unvarnished experience of that life. But also to distill that down, that life into its basic essence. It's necessary beginning, it's unvarnished experience, it's basic essence. That's his commencement address to us. And we're going to hear it. And it's going to comprise a grand total of four verses. Three verses. So if you're able to stand, we're in chapter 7, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do so for you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the commencement address of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to take this passage in a slightly different order than in which Matthew arranges it, in which Jesus spoke it, because I think it holds together in a way that helps us to see um, his overall point. And um, as you'll notice, both in this passage and in the passages for the next two weeks, Jesus is setting up a contrast between two things. And this week, he's setting up a contrast between two ways. One way that is very popular, seems very right, seems very familiar, and yet which he says actually isn't what it seems. And another way that is more unfamiliar, it is definitely unpopular, and therefore it is probably unsettling, and yet if you only trust him, you will find that it is precious. 
and he's out to make a distinction between those two ways. And you understand what he means by the unfamiliar, unpopular, and therefore unsettling way when you hear what he has to say in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. All right. What's with the imagery here and the gate? Gate, wide, narrow, what's all that about? Look, uh, you ever visit some places you want to go to? Like I went to the tourist game for the first time last week. That was great, right? If you want to go to the Arboretum, um, that's great. If you want to go to Disney World, all of these wonderful, fun-filled places that take your money with no problem. <clears throat> Every one of them has a gate. There's an access point. You want to go into this wide and welcoming place? You've got to go into the gate. That's the way it works. That's the only way it works. You get in that way. Jesus is talking about a gate here, and he's bringing to mind, for those who are listening to him, something like the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was a place, architecturally speaking, was out to represent God's presence and his holiness and his majesty, but that temple had gates. You didn't jump the wall. You came in through the access point that he entered into. And therefore, Jesus is saying unto us, the good life, the life that he's been outlining for us in the entirety of this sermon, that life has a way in. Therefore, it has a gate to speak metaphorically. It has a point of access. And Jesus says there is a gate, and that gate is narrow. Now, what is this gate? Why is it narrow? He's not talking about an actual gate, opens like doors and things like that. In what sense is he speaking of a gate as the way into this life? The gate, rather simply and straightforwardly, is whatever he has said to us. He trusts, respect for, embrace of, submission to, delight in, in him and what he has said. That's the gate. That's the way into life. With all due respect to Steve Jobs, where Steve Jobs would say, just follow your heart, you know, um, go with your bliss. Jesus is saying, actually, no, no, follow me. Put your faith in me. Now, why would Jesus say that? It's, it's pretty clear that Jesus has set himself apart from anybody else that has ever spoken like he has. He goes up on the mountain like Moses did, and sits down to speak like a teacher. So he's already given off this vibe of, I got something to say to you. You better listen up. Stick around. And then he has this audacity to say, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. What? And then he says these things on a repeated occasion, if you remember from earlier on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 and he quotes something from the law. But I say to you, whoa, Jesus, look out, man. You are absolutely seeming to be elevating yourself on par with the law, if not on par with God himself. Yes, Jesus saying that's the point. And by the end of the sermon, what does everybody that's been listening to him for those three chapters say? Man, this guy speaks with an authority. Like, we've heard of prophets, priests, and kings, and every one of them says, Thus saith the Lord. They come to speak like a mediator, a messenger from God. But Jesus is up there saying, Hey, I say to you, listen up. He's saying, The gate into life is faith in me and what I have said. Life begins there. And that's where it goes. 
And that, let's just be honest, is pretty narrow. It's not simply follow your bliss. It's not simply follow what's trending. It's not follow whoever might say whatever is on the right side of history. Go with that. Jesus saying, no, follow me. That's the narrow way. Now, I know full well there are people in this room that hear that and go, narrow, yeah, it sure is narrow, narrow-minded. How many people do we know that are from totally different backgrounds and belief systems and faith and no faith at all or whatever it might mean? They all, you know, they seem to live happy, earnest, uh, love their kids kind of lives. So why would Jesus kind of make it so narrow, like me, like follow me, I'm the gate and that gate is narrow. Like, what's up with that? Why is he so narrow and why does that come off as so narrow-minded and why do you Christians sort of, you know, wax eloquently on that when really everybody's going, man, there's just all sorts of other ways. Why are you saying that one's the narrow one? And it's, you know, look, it's a popular point and it's not without, wor- it's not without great worthy of consideration and, and thoughtfulness. And so let me answer that question in two parts, one here and one later. And, and let me put it in terms with a lot of help from what we've been doing on a Wednesday nights for the last six weeks, which we'll wrap up this Wednesday night in questioning Christianity. Where, where that whole thesis that we've been considering on a Wednesday night is this. Everybody rests their lives on ideas that they cannot prove. If you believe everything that is is just the product of a chance expression of existence and that matter just exists, you can't prove that. Any more than I can prove to you God's existence. But if you think your life won't follow a much different trajectory, if you believe that matter just exists, that's a whole realm of new implications. And let me see if I can put Jesus' words perhaps in a little bit more a familiar way to cast it. When he says, enter by the narrow gate, I think what he's out to tell us is this. It matters where you plant your feet. Next time you go to the tourist game, I want you to stare intently at the pitcher's mound. And I want you to stare at least for about four to eight minutes. That little two-inch by six-inch thing at the back of the pitcher's mound, it's called the rubber. And beneath that is a concrete slab that anchors it into into the mound. And what does the pitcher do every time he pitches? He puts his weight against it. He plants his foot there. Why? Because he will not fire that ball forward over home plate with the same accuracy or the same speed or the same velocity without having planted his feet there. Next time you go to a football game, watch very carefully. If it's wet or if it's dry, it's a very different experience for everybody on the field. You can't cut. You can't accelerate. You can't not dislocate your knee if the, the ground is slushy. It's a much different field. It's a much different experience. Where you plant your feet matters. Jesus' first point of his commencement address is this. It matters where you plant your feet. And so when people say, you Christians, man, you're so narrow, you're narrow-minded. What is implicit within that claim? That one way is just as good as any other. You guys got your way. I got mine. And they're all kind of getting to the same place. It's just one way. They're all good as another. And yet, with all due respect to somebody that might inhabit that idea, they're not the same. And we've heard that in, in hopefully um, excessive, perhaps, detail on these Wednesday nights, talking about these issues that everybody thinks about. Take, for instance, the idea of meaning. 
If you hold to a secular point of view in which there is no God and no transcendent law, do you know where your meaning comes from? Your meaning comes from everything that you do, everything that you've achieved, everyone that you know, every experience that you have. Your meaning is there. You get them there. You locate it there. You define it by that. Great things. A Christian point of view doesn't disparage that in the least. I find meaning in all sorts of relationships and things that I've done and experiences that I've had. But when I suffer, when I suffer, when you suffer, all of those things can be taken from you. And if you've grounded your meaning in it because you think there is no other meaning outside of this universe, then you will have a different experience. It's not the same feet. It's not the same surface. Think about identity. If you come from a secularist point of view, identity is formed by whatever it is you've done, whatever it is you've achieved, what family name you have, whatever you think your AGI is. It's all on you. Your identity is on your shoulders. You form it in that way. To be a Christian is to believe that your foundational identity is not something that you did, but on something that Jesus did for you. And therefore, if you adopt a secularist point of view, what have you adopted? You've adopted a world in which if you screw up or you never make it or your expectations are never fulfilled or everybody becomes disappointed with you, what have you lost? You've lost everything. From a Christian point of view, where does your identity come from? Your identity comes from how he knows you and how he knows you in spite of you and loves you anyway. The ground is not the same. Where you plant your feet matters. So accuse Christians of being narrow if you will, but please don't say that they're just one of many different ways that are all achieving the same thing and have these same experiences. They can't be. Be honest with yourselves. Jesus' argument to us is that it matters where you plant your feet. Not all footing, not all gates are as good as another. Catherine Lucky recently wrote, she's a, a recent graduate of Harvard University. And on the day that she graduated from that school, she was also baptized into Jesus. And, and she explains her experience that day and how it represents sort of a collision of worldviews. Even on that day, she's graduating with high honors from Harvard. She's being baptized in the Charles River outside of Boston. And in that moment, she's realizing... <clears throat> how those, those clash of ideas or narratives are coming to a head on that same day. It was just this beautiful juxtaposition there. And she says, Harvard taught lessons in jealousy, greed, self-reproach. I felt utter vincibility, even near commencement, an apex of mortar boards in Latin, American elms, bells, and addresses. There was doubt all around, but not of God, but of achievement, which had made me whiny and insufferable. What does she mean? If you find your meaning, your identity, your worth, the index of your value in in the kinds of expectations and achievements that nothing like an Ivy League education can cast upon you, if you put it there, no wonder you adopt this either fearful, prideful, despairing, or in her words, insufferable frame of mind. It's not the same ground upon which to plant. Jesus' commencement address is to us. It matters where you plant your feet. That's his first point. The second is this. 
When it comes to the experience of the life in him, the experience of the life that he is arguing for us that is good, he's saying, this life is good, but it ain't no walk in the park. That's point two. I don't think he would have said ain't, but that's what he gets to. It is no walk in the park. And how do we know that? Just listen by verse 14 about entering by the narrow gate. What is this gate? For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Oh, sobering, what do you mean? The gate is the foundation of life. The way, Jesus says, is the experience of life. And he calls that experience hard. Now, the word hard, <clears throat> that's how the English, folks, English translators chose to translate the word there. Um, I don't know that it really captures his meaning. Because, look, calculus is hard. It's hard for me. Um, pulling a stump out of the ground is hard. Uh, that's hard. Jesus' word here is actually the same word for speaking of tribulation. I don't know that I would call calculus a tribulation. But he says that this life is in many ways a challenge. A challenge like no other challenge that is put before us. And at that point we have to ask ourselves, um, Jesus, why is this way to life hard? Well, for instance, uh, let me give you this one. Try being a Christian in a minority culture in some other place. Um, according to one uh, statistician, um, in some places, if you're a Christian, you're 143 times more likely to suffer violence simply because you profess Jesus' name. Now, that's not our experience in this world. It is the experience in many places in the world. Just for professing his name. It's harder. It's harder. Read the book of Acts. Straight out of the gate. On the day of Pentecost, everybody's, wow! And within days... They're being put in prison saying to shut up. It's the experience. It's hard. Now look, in our culture, in, in Western civilization, in America in particular, you are not going to experience anything that we would call persecution in the ways that other people are feeling in other places. But yeah, I would say in the last 20 years, I read an article yesterday. There is a new appreciation for trying to marginalize a voice if it comes from a Christian point of view. And not just marginalize it, but punish it. Because it's increasingly interpreted, not just as, that's your faith and here's mine, but actually you're an impediment to society and the more you stop talking, the better it will be for everyone. So it's hard in that way. It's hard in what comes from the outside. But it's also hard if we're honest with ourselves about what it is just to follow him in any way. And all you got to do is rewind the tape. Everything that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, none of us look at that and go, ah, I can do that. And knowing is half the battle. Oh, it isn't. It is easier to only be angry at someone and see them only as somebody you're angry with. It is easier to reduce someone to an object of desire than to appreciate them in their fullness. It is easier to treat an enemy only as an enemy and to seek their harm. It is easier to pray in order to be seen and not in order to know your Father who is in heaven. It is easier to confront somebody with their problem without considering your own struggle in that very same thing or at least considering the whole breadth of your own existence. It's just easier. And Jesus is pushing it back against everything in us that is our natural, easier impulse. It is easier 
not to pray. Or to pray more as a perfunctory thing that is something that is a source of great lifeblood. It is easier to stay in a rut rather than trust in the Lord and repent of your sin. One of the wackiest things anybody ever might hear Jesus say is what he says to the invalid in John chapter 5 who has been an invalid for 38 years and is sitting before this pool. They called it the pool of Bethesda. And it was popular um, knowledge or popular legend that if you got in that pool, it would heal you of your diseases. And here's the guy, 38 years an invalid, sitting there hoping for his chance to jump in the water first. How, I don't know. Jesus walks up. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth to that invalid is, hey, do you want to be healed? Jesus, where's that question come from? What, what would motivate you to say to somebody who on, they only know dragging themselves around on their hands and arms, how, why would you ask somebody, do you want to be healed? Because I think in that moment, what he was speaking to in the way of a physical condition in somebody oh, is broadly applicable to us all when it comes to our own spiritual condition. Um, It is easier to settle for a sick heart than to follow in his way. It just is. Interpersonally, it is easier not to talk about what needs to be talked about than to talk about it and to go there. It's it's easier. It is easier to let someone continue in a way that you know is harming them than to speak into that condition at risk of them blowing up in your face and you thinking, ah, why did I ever talk like that? It's easier. It's easier to stay in those ruts or to allow people to stay in those ruts. It's easier to do that. And what is true interpersonally is also true personally. It is easier to stay bitter than to examine your heart about why bitterness prevails. It is easier It is easier to expend so... Oh, gosh, I know this one. It is easier to expend so much energy trying to please somebody to to finally calibrate every single word and action to make sure that they're never mad at you than it is to examine yourself. Why is that so important? It is easier... Look, put it another way. It is easier to walk around on a bum leg for years knowing that it hurts and doing nothing about it than to go in for the arthroscopic surgery. Because the longer you're on that misaligned joint, the more it's going to cost you in time. The way is hard that leads to life. And it pushes back against everything that we naturally feel. It is easier to go there. And that's why Jesus is out to say to us, look, this way is good, but it's going to be hard. But a good hard Now, some of you might be thinking in the back of your mind, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Don't I remember something in Jesus' words about, like, hey, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Didn't he say that too? Yeah, he did. He totally did. And he's not contradicting himself by saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and enter by the narrow gate, which is hard, which leads to life. It's not a contradiction. Why? It may be the experience of many people in this room. You had a teacher, you had a mentor, you had a coach, you had a parent that you knew they were so for you that everything that they asked of you, which was a high bar, like it was going to be okay. Because they knew they were so for you, it maybe didn't change the burden of everything they asked of you, but it did change the experience of it. 
The way is hard. But with Jesus' yoke upon us, it's easier because we know He is so for us. It is not good luck. It is take my hand. Hold my hand. We'll do this together. And we'll do it well. It matters where you plant your feet. And it matters that you know that the way in this life is not walking the park. But he has one last thing for us. Because yes, it is hard. But point three, don't make it complicated. Just read the Sermon on the Mount, and it's pretty clear. Jesus leaves no stone unturned in the sorts of things that he wants to say to us in terms of what is that life that knows God is for you. And like a stone, he has fashioned that into a diamond, and he is out to show us every facet of that diamond, its brilliance in all of its complexity. But it's not complicated, he's saying. This life in me, everything that I've said so far, you could distill it down into one sentence. And you know what he does? He does that in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The Bible says a lot of things. But Jesus is saying, you want to summarize the whole Hebrew Bible? Listen to what I just said. You want to summarize everything that you've just heard me say? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The essence of this life, in simplest terms, is an exercise of imagination. Obedience is an expression of our imagination. To imagine ourselves in the shoes of another and responding accordingly. When we finish this series, we have listened to Jesus' sermon. For the next several weeks, for the rest of the summer, we're going to listen to Jesus' stories. He's a great storyteller. And yours and my life are shaped profoundly and in many ways unconsciously by stories. And so what is it to, to grow in formation in him? It's to hear his stories and let his stories form ours. And he's going to tell those stories. And here he is out to tell us, That in order to obey, what is it this life about? It's about exercising your imagination like storytellers do. To imagine yourself in the shoes of another and responding accordingly. Oh, spouses, do you imagine how much your marriage would be different if at every time you started to get into a conflict that you made it an actual part of your discipline to imagine for just a moment what might they be thinking that led them to say or act in that way? I mean, we do it already. What are you thinking, right? <clears throat> but we're really not asking the question, right? We're like, what? Yeah. Imagine how much those moments would be different if we just tried to imagine what was going on in their minds and to seek clarification in that before just going off. Because look, you have a choice in that matter. If, if, if you're in the midst of an argument, if somebody is treating you monstrously, you know what choices you have? You, you could just sort of jump to conclusions and go your own way. You could just sort of go off on them or write them off. You could. Jesus is saying, stop. Stop, drop, and roll. Stop, drop, and imagine yourself in their shoes. Imagine you are the one who has harmed them. What deference would you want? What clarification would you want them to seek? 
What consideration would you want them to give? You have to think like another thinks. The, the whole, it's, it's rather remarkable, right? What is this whole world's kind of, this sort of very popular word these days? It's the word empathy. Like, try to feel what they're feeling and respond accordingly. Like, that's a new thing. <laughs> uh, Jesus is kind of saying that here. Think, try to think like they're thinking. Try to feel what they're feeling. And not just if somebody's treating you poorly, but if they're treating themselves poorly. I mean, in a moment like that, you could just sort of say to yourself, ah, I want to get involved. I, I, they wouldn't want to hear from me. But then you've got to put yourself in their shoes and go, if I'm the one that is on a trajectory towards some form of oblivion, what would I want someone to do for me? Do for them. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. There's a simplicity to it. And what Jesus is saying to us is that he knows us really well. He gets us so well that he knows what is our deepest problem and the greatest solution. And here's where I get to unveil for you what David Foster Wallace said in his commencement address. Because what Jesus says in verse 12 is not so far from what he said at Kenyon College in 2005. He said this, There is no experience that you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. Consequently, our natural hardwired default setting is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. That's our problem. You know what? He didn't come up with that. Jesus did. What's the solution? The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That's real freedom. What's my problem? I am so fixated on myself. I just like no, let nobody else in and can't really take into consideration anybody. And it's kind of like I got to matter and I got to work to make sure everybody knows that I matter. That's, that's not freedom. That's slavery. But in those moments where I get myself off myself, that's freedom. That I am available. Not to prove anything to anybody, not to work my way and to ingratiate myself into their good graces, but just to be available for them. That's freedom. And Jesus is saying, if you can only exercise a little bit of imagination to imagine somebody else's condition, oh man, you're on your way to freedom. That's what DFW says in his commencement address. But here's the thing. Commencement addresses are not enough. Knowing is not even half the battle. I need something more. And you know what I need? I need Jesus to practice what he preaches. And like nobody else ever had, Jesus did whatever he wished that others would do to him, he did also to them. And by that I mean this. If Jesus had been estranged from God, if Jesus had been burdened by the guilt of his own sin, if Jesus had been fearful of his own death and disillusioned by the way the world works and the way his own heart works, do you know what he would have wanted? He would have wanted some to come to rescue him. To attend to those things that he could not do for himself. He would have wanted that. 
If Jesus had been one to think that the only way he can find love in this world is to do everything he can to merit that love, he would have wanted someone to come and rescue him from that and to show him that there is a love that is full of grace and mercy and has nothing to do with our effort. He would have wanted that. And guess what? Not only would he have wanted that, he did that. He imagined himself in our shoes, and then he put himself in our place. It is more than words. It is more than persuasion. It is what his work did that allows us to see the importance of her words. And it is that point that also speaks of why You can accuse Christians of being narrow, but please don't say that they're just one of many other possibilities that achieve the same end. They're not. Gautama Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, said this in one of his writings. Look, he's he's imagining a situation in which someone has abused him. And how do you respond to somebody that's hurt you? He said this, look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. If you live with such thoughts, you will live in hate. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. Wow, sounds like overlap. Because listen to what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Sounds like something similar in their ethical treatments about how to respond to somebody who treats you like an enemy. Here's the difference. What Gautama Buddha imagined in hypothetical situation, Jesus experienced. He was cast out. He was cast off. He was treated as an unrighteous person to die for the sake of unrighteous people. And therefore, that's what, that which is spoken of in a poetic frame from Buddha's mouth Jesus walks in in history and does the same, and that's not a metaphor. You can accuse Christians of being narrow if you will, but please don't say that they're the same story. In fact, don't insult Buddhists by telling them that they essentially believe the same things. The Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, when asked, aren't Christianity and Buddhism essentially the same? He was honest enough to say this. He sees a parallel in practice. However, this parallel should not be taken to the extreme. He says, there is a Tibetan expression that states, don't try to put a yak's head on a sheep's body. And why would he say that? Because it was in response to somebody that says, can't you just turn Jesus into Buddha? You can, but that's like putting a yak's head on a sheep's body. Oh, great respect accorded both traditions. Just don't call them essentially the same. It's a different storyline. And that's why on the day that Catherine Lucky, the graduate of Harvard, was baptized, she said this. The morning's self-death, the weird ritual that didn't translate into status, it wasn't an achievement, but an initiation. A beginning I'd been given, rather than an end I deserved. This is the gospel, my friends. He beckons us to him to lay aside our belief that we can take care of ourselves and instead trust him to plant our feet in his word and faith in his work. To know that it will be hard and yet it will be a good hard. 
but to know that when we place our faith in him, we're placing our faith in one who never asked us to do something that he didn't do for us or himself, but he did so in such a way that it does not lead us to try to follow him to prove something, but only to give thanks for what he did. What does it look like in practice? What does it look like in simplest terms? Some of you may know the name Mike Iaconelli. He was a big guru in youth ministry for many years. And can't you tell, he is wearing a chicken head there. But he died in a car crash about 15 years ago. And he wrote this before he died. I just want to be remembered as a person who loved God and who served others more than he served himself. Who was trying to grow in maturity and stability. I want to have more victories than defeats, and yet here I am, almost 60, and I fail on a regular basis. If I were to die today, I would be nervous about what people would say at my funeral. I would be happy if they said things like, he was a nice guy, or he was occasionally decent, or Mike wasn't as bad as a lot of people. (laughs) Unfortunately, eulogies are delivered by people who know the deceased. And I know what the consensus would be. Mike was a mess. Jesus is showing us the way to that maturity and stability that we would all revel in as we approach, as we experience that. Jesus is calling us to forget ourselves because we don't have to think about ourselves so much because he's done everything that we need for him to do. But at the bottom of this life, the bottom of this good life is one thing, and that is his grace. His grace and his mercy and his love that is steadfast, such that it is, no, it is no shame to say Mike was a mess, Patrick was a mess. Those all things can be held together in tension. And we might walk in his way and know that there's life and that at its bottom there is grace. Happy graduation. Let's pray. Father, uh, it was so much, and whatever we need to hear, I ask that you'd help us to hear. I ask that you'd help us to see you as the one who is worthy of all consideration and submission and deference, to go to places that's hard, to do things that in the moment we don't want to do, but we do so because we trust you. But above all things, Father, help us to see that you are beautiful. that to gaze at your beauty and to be in your holy temple is a thing worthy of us, worthy of what you have done. And that you would show us now what it is to plant our feet on higher ground. In Jesus' name, amen.